0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So I think that today we're going to have a lot of fun, you know, with the uh, guests that we have. I think that we're going to be able to really understand well, you know, the the perspective and the mindset from both sides of the table, you know, from the table of a, you know, a, a VC, you know, investor, you know, from a fund that has now over 2 billion assets under management to a founder, you know, like that has done, you know, several, you know, an exit, a pretty significant exit. You know, knows how to build, knows how to scale, race, and you name it. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today. Fari Diner, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Alejandro. Good to be here.
0: So obviously you've spent quite a significant amount of uh, of your life in the U.S. I mean, everything, you know, started, you know, coming here for for studies. But I know that you were born in Cyprus. So how was life
1: growing up? You know, it's a, it's a wonderful, boring island, perhaps I can say, <laughs> in the Mediterranean. So, uh, you know, there's the, the most of uh, the economy and, and, and so on comes from tourism in Cyprus. We'll see how uh, it will fare in the current times. But yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I grew up there largely on the beach, um, then moved to the U.S. to study, and, and uh, there we are. So I've been kind of in North America um, most of my life. And why
0: North America?
1: I was actually first in high school. Uh, I was an exchange student. Uh, So I came to the U.S. I uh, lived with a family outside of Boston in a wonderful little town called Situate, uh, Massachusetts. And my my host father, my host family, um, host father was an electrical engineer, MIT graduate. That is the year in which I decided I want to study engineering uh, and I wanted to come to the U.S course i don't come from a family with a lot of means so when i went back to the u.s my number one objective was to come back sorry when i went back to cyprus uh, after my high school exchange program i wanted to you know come back that was my primary objective um but i needed a scholarship in order to uh, be able to you know afford school in the u.s so um ultimately that's uh, that's what happened. Uh, I was lucky enough to get an academic scholarship to attend um, university in the U.S., and that's what brought me uh, here. You know, it was my exchange year where I fell in love with America. So uh, you know, I was 15 years old at the time. But um, you know, here we go. Very cool. Very
0: cool. And obviously, I mean, you you um, ended up studying electrical engineering in in Florida. So so. I mean, were you always into like resolving problems like, like growing up? I mean, was that, you know, like figuring out like how to come up with solutions for stuff or or, or I obviously you were talking about that you made the decision of of becoming an an engineer, but I'm wondering if, if it was kind of like a process.
1: Um, it wasn't, it, it, I, ultimately it ended up being a process, Alejandro, but I can't say it was planned. Um, you know, I've always been, you know, back in high school times, I was more of a, left brain person, uh, in terms of engineering and mathematics and physics and all that kind of stuff. So that probably what led me into, um, engineering, but throughout my career, it went from, you know, engineering and designing circuit, high speed circuitry and designing, uh, you know, fiber optic communication, uh, components into more of a product management, uh, than ultimately onto, you know building and, and, and um, running divisions of large companies uh, and into venture-funded startups that exited and ultimately into venture capital. And I'm back, now I'm running uh, a company again. So as I mentioned, yeah. I like being on both sides. But that was the process, if you know what I mean.
0: Of course. And we'll talk about them, you know, in detail. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering here, like, in your family, I mean, was there anyone an entrepreneur or, or was this like um like you were developed, kind of like being born with it?
1: No, I mean, I, I'd say that my father is quite entrepreneurial. He's a chemical engineer himself. Um, he had spent most of his life really in the olive and olive oil industry. So he is a chemical engineer by training, but he's been in the olive business. And, uh, and you know, he's 80 years old now, and he's still working very much because he, wow. he just loves it. Uh, so I think perhaps the entrepreneurial DNA uh, comes from there, but it's also... By way of my influences and what I've been exposed to, and I think being in in North America and the US, and starting with my host family in in Boston, um, you know, I think we kind of evolve over time. Uh, but I can't say that it just sort of came from a um, strong desire to be like someone. Sort of it just evolved into this journey.
0: Of course, and you know, after you got your. Your engineering degree, I mean, you you did a couple of um, stints at different places before you really went at it, you know, with Katera, which we, which ended up being your, your first, you know, like pretty significant, you know, like uh, full cycle, you know, experience as an entrepreneur. But I want to ask you here, I mean, during your time, let's say at, a, you know, at and Pirelli, Siemens, uh, even OC Optics, I guess, you know, you were really focused here, you know, as as an engineer, you know, really focused on product. And I know as well that, you know, like you, you've, you've mentioned to me that product managers, you know, and people that are around product typically make good CEOs and, you know, you've gone out, you know, like to be a CEO and and pretty, pretty, pretty much a successful CEO. So I guess what do you think, you know, like really those experiences, you know, really around product, you know, perhaps, you know, at AT AT&T or Brelli or Siemens really taught you about, about business?
1: Right. I mean, I, I think we're all victims of our own experiences, I guess. Right. So my opinions are formed uh, by my own experiences. So I do believe that uh, I am a venture capitalist. I'm a CEO. I'm a founder um, and you know, involved in hiring and firing a lot of people throughout these years. I, that, that is my observation in that uh, a good uh, sort of product manager understands technology appreciates the difficulty associated with uh, building stuff because in product management you really need to balance the needs of what your customers are looking for uh, and the capabilities of your team and you ought to be able to talk the language of technology and products uh, with your engineering team and have enough respect from them at the same time be able to understand the needs and constraints of your customers so there's a kind of a business level understanding. And then, of course, you become more of a project manager uh, to make sure that things get developed and, and uh, you know various needs and constraints find the right intersection between the customer uh, financial sort of uh, uh, intent, as well as um, you know what, what the engineering team can do, if you
0: know. So, and, it took about, and it took about, in this regard, about eight years for you to really take the leap and you were here at Siemens, you know, you were the director of a uh, product line management. So, so I want to ask you here, like, what what do you think really, you know, what's required, or 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 what do you think was the trigger for you to to finally, you know, like make that leap of faith? I mean, what happened for you to to take a look, and you know, maybe the opportunity of Catera coming to you and and saying, hey, this is it, I'm I'm going at it.
1: Right, actually, my that that experience, the sort of what happened, is actually an interesting story um, by way of a company uh, called Sienna. Sienna is a public company today. They were found, they were founded back in the 90s when I was at Pirelli. I was a good old nerdy, you know, product manager engineer. Uh, We had pioneered some of the initial work in wavelength division multiplexing, these multi-channel communications on fiber optic networks. We were actually uh, the first in space, but then this company got started uh, and uh, they went after it and they came in with a lot of conviction, whereas we were a, a bit more conservative, let's say. And that's when I kind of and then they built this company. Uh, they took it public in 1997. it was a large IPO. That's effectively what made me jealous from a business perspective saying, "Look, I understand the technology, the product. I can do that." In fact, so when I was at Pirelli, my intent was to actually go start a company, and through a friend of mine I got hooked up with um, with Siemens who were interested in building a new optical communications division in the US. Siemens is a large conglomerate. They were very active in uh, class five central office switches and phone networks and so on back then but they wanted to get into fiber optics and the idea was really to I said, okay um, i could go there build a company uh, or build a division inside siemens and then the thought back then was to actually spin it out so luckily i'm not a very patient person So we went there, we built this division, we were quite successful getting the products into companies like MCI. This is the old, this is currently Verizon, you know, uh, and the Germans and the Americans, of course, when things were a little were successful, everybody was kind of fighting over who was going to own what piece of this spinoff. It was taking long. So as I mentioned, luckily, I'm not a very patient person. And that's when I said, you know what? Industry is moving. We were at the boom times. This was post um, the telecom deregulation, if, if you might remember, when Clinton uh, passed the Tele- Telecommunication Deregulation Act, when all these uh, competitive local exchange carriers were coming. So that was the beginning of the infrastructure build cycle. It all started with fiber optic communications and so on. That has now enabled what we're enjoying today with social networks, whether it's Facebook and you know what Google and so on. So that content and and social networking phase was all initiated back in the infrastructure build days so anyway things were moving very fast fiber optic was very fiber optics was very very hot um, and because i'm not patient i uh, i decided i said you know what i'm going to leave and start my own company to do to do uh, you know what i wanted to do so that's how qtera this uh, fiber optic communications company that that I uh, started was born, really, sort of out of a uh, bit of a frustration, I guess.
0: Got it. Got it. So then tell us about the um, the early days of Katera. Of so obviously, you know, here you are, you know, you go at it with it. You know, like, how, how do you think about perhaps, like, building the team and surrounding yourself by the right people and really bringing this to life?
1: Right. I mean, Katera is an interesting experience um, in that that's when I sort of uh, learned about venture capital as well. Uh, It was funded. The the lead investor in the company was Battery Ventures out of Boston. Uh, It was out of their Fund Four. It was a $200 million fund, and I think we did a $5 million Series A at uh, something like five pre. Um, And I remember calling my dad after having left Siemens, and he was asking me, "You know, what are you doing?" I said, "Look, I started this company." And uh, he said, "What do you mean you started a company?" You know. uh, I said, well, you know, I I raised some money. And he goes, well, how much money did you raise? I said, well, I raised $5 million. And my father says, well, Fari, that's a lot of money. How are you going to pay that back? I said, Dad, I don't have to pay it back. It's equity investment in my company. My dad goes, what company? You were at Siemens two weeks ago. What company? I said, Dad, I sold half of the company for $5 million. So to this day, Alejandro, I believe my dad still doesn't understand how this venture capital works, <laughs> where you know, you have a guy, a a a young kid uh from Cyprus with a PowerPoint presentation, uh kind of a fire in the belly and and the desire to change the world. And in, in this country, people give you five million dollars against it. It's a it's an idea, right? So, so it's hard to understand. I believe to this day, um, for a lot of uh, people around the world, that you can actually go sell half of a company for millions of dollars that just that you just founded, or started, or incorporated, you know, a few weeks before. If you know what I mean. yeah. But that's uh, that's what's fueling our our uh, you know our innovation cycle.
0: Absolutely, and you know it's it's interesting because I mean you're talking here about a Series A that was five million. I mean now you know this could be technically a seat. I mean it's unbelievable how how times have changed. But I guess in in this case, you know, with Qterra, I mean it was quite a quite a ride. I mean we're talking about three years and five months, and and you know literally it had a, a a smashing hit of an outcome. So so what do you what what would you say, especially for the people that are listening, like what ended up being like the business model of Qterra?
1: The business model of Quterra was actually very simple. We we built uh, high-speed communications equipment. We were a hardware company. Today it wouldn't be as sexy. Back then it was. We built a hardware company, and we were fast. I think time to market was key. In my opinion, having been on both sides of the table, startups win because their ability to execute quickly. Um, when time to market becomes the uh, differentiator whoever sort of gets their first wins it's a fantastic environment for the startup Um, otherwise our most customers of startups don't really want to buy from them if they can buy it from a large company they would prefer to do that it's more stable etc so when when the environment is moving very fast you get to make decisions very quickly you take two steps forward and one step back but you do that at a fast cadence in my opinion that's the fundamental advantage of startups whereas large companies oftentimes uh, become paralyzed by their inability to make a decision yeah. right so um, and that's in an environment that's moving fast getting there um, before the competition matters in an environment in a market segment that's moving slowly and so on i don't think the startups really win because uh, they can always wait for the big companies. The customers can always wait for the big guys, if you know what I mean. So I think our our um, you know outcome there. I don't think it's it was about a business model innovation, but it was about time to market, um, bringing a product. Um, very quickly and and effectively sort of borrowing technologies from different industries. Uh, and what I mean by that is we built very long haul, ultra-long haul communication systems. Things think of fiber optic networks that go from New York to LA with little or no regeneration. And we if instead of saying how do we do this from scratch, we said how do they do it in the undersea networks? That goes back to my Pirelli days. So we effectively took what the undersea industry was doing and make it a terrestrial product if you know what i mean of course there was um so we we it was a diverse group of people who looked at um the problem from very different angles but the key was this impatience key was the desire to get there before everybody else because we sensed we kind of had a hunch that this was going to explode and uh, you know and it's sort of what happened i guess it part of it is luck as everybody would tell you yeah. um but uh, and then you know like I'll, I'll go back to the venture thing um you know battery ventures i was introduced to them through a friend was the first company to give me a term sheet i took it and i moved on instead of saying well could i get a little higher valuation you know, I mean, you would have kind of missed the forest for the trees there. Perhaps we could have gotten a higher valuation and, and not had to give up 50% of our company. But they were ready to go, and, uh, and we just kind of moved on. And to this day, in my current company, this kind of desire to act, uh, have a prejudice for action, is uh, very important to me. I think it's one of the principles that I believe in. Uh, so at, at our current company at plume uh, we like to say that while people work on the you know pacific standard time zone eastern standard time zone or central european standard time zone at plume we work at the now standard time zone if you know what i mean so we and and that's yeah. and
0: we'll talk about plume in, in just a little bit but i want to obviously i mean hear you guys for for Q-Tera. i mean you raised a little bit over 30 million and 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 really amazing outcome. At what point Nortel, you know, comes into the picture and, you know, tell us about this deal.
1: Yeah. Um, We raised about uh, 30, 35 million in equity. As I remember, we raised a little bit of debt as well. Uh, Nortel was the big dog in the industry at the time. In optical communications, Nortel was the key. Um, And we, you know, they ultimately were looking, you know, market was moving fast. So I think uh, they were very smart. Uh, By making the decision, you know, we were a year, year and a half ahead of them in terms of, uh, you know, being at the right place with the right product at the, you know, with the right um, set of core technologies that enabled it. They made a buy make versus versus buy decision. And could Nortel have developed that product? I think they absolutely could. Uh, But um, that's how it started. Because, again, like I said, these competitive local exchange carriers were being created left and right. And big companies back then, MCI and Sprint and so on, were, not, were under a lot of pressure to defend their turf. So uh, this is when the fiber optic networks exploded. Again, all about timing. Uh, you got to move.
0: Of course. So what were the deals of? What were the terms of this of this transaction?
1: Um we sold a company uh, it was a stock transaction and it was valued and you know at the time of, of Nortel stock, it was about three point two five billion dollars in Nortel stock um, nice. and and when we and when six months after we we exited Nortel stock doubled so you know depending on when people when our investors um, uh, sort of cashed in or, or distributed, you know it could have been even even big but it was a you know a series a investor you know, uh, who put in like i can tell your companies like battery ventures who put in more money i think they put in nine or ten million dollars into into qtera and about three years later they pulled out about a billion dollars so back then it was a nice. big deal um
0: so hopefully they invited you to dinner. Sorry, I mean quite a quite an exit. So, so, so yeah. So, so here I want to ask you. I mean, obviously you were in 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 Miami. You know, with there I mean, really impressive to build a company like this in in Florida at the time. Uh, but then, you know, after this deal, you decide to move to California. Why?
1: Um, the company was actually not in Miami. We were in Florida, but not all the way down in Miami. We were in. Um, uh, Palm Beach area in Boca Raton, where uh, IBM had big, big, big technology. So there was a little bit of technology there, but it's, yep. it's somewhat ir- irrelevant. Um, look, I, because of the tech space, a lot of my contacts and my, my life was really spent in, in the Valley, uh, in California. Uh, you know, I had a lot of professional sort of um, connections to California, and that was the first time in my life when you look at um, you know what's what's happened. Where I got to decide where I wanted to live uh, by way of uh, you know that 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 opportunity and that exit. Oftentimes in your jobs, you know how it goes. Somebody offers you a better job, or you want to move, do something else. You pick up and you go to wherever the job is. So I said, look, the world is kind of my oyster at the moment. Where would I go? And uh, certainly, I wanted to stay in the U.S. and California, also by way of. Uh, sort of not only climate, but farming and so on. I come from a farming heritage from, uh, from Cyprus. So, you know, I, I I thought, all right, I'm going to retire now. You know, I was, uh, you know, almost about 30 years old. (laughs) It was quite young back then. Um, And I thought I was going to retire. I decided, uh, you know, I said, I'm going to smoke cigars and I'm going to, grow a ponytail and I'm going to retire <laughs> in the wine country. Um, I'm going to make wine and so on. So I bought this, uh, vineyard and so on. So that retirement lasted about a week, I think. Okay. So, uh, I've come to this quick realization that, uh, you know, in, the, in our tech world, things move very, very fast. Yeah. Whereas in the wine and, and farming world, it's, uh, it's a good balance to a, a fast paced life, but, uh, so then I started making my own investments a little bit uh, in the valley. And that led me into, you know, one thing led to another and that led me into venture capital.
0: Of course. I mean, you joined Sigma Partners and, uh, you know, you were quite active there. I mean, pretty, pretty significant and, and successful uh, venture fund. So, so I want to ask you here, I mean, what, what have you learned about patterns when it comes to identifying founders, you know, that have the potential of doing something?
1: You know this question gets uh, gets asked a lot you know in the, in the venture community because everybody wants to be right right you want to you want to bet on uh, bet on um, the right companies right founders so you can make money for your investors uh, and make the, the right decisions I in my opinion I, I've observed this uh, there are many many venture capitalists who um, you know who have were very smart people who you know, big degrees, MBAs from the right places, and engineering degrees, who don't really spend a lot of time uh, as entrepreneurs, and they've proven to be quite successful. Um, So, and then on the other hand, firms like us, let's say at Sigma, many of us are previous founders and engineers, and uh, or either, you know, People who ran large divisions of companies or, or founded and exited uh, multiple venture-funded startups. Our approach tends to be more around not a not a tech, not, not a um, portfolio approach, but optimization on a company-by-company company basis. While we are in the finance asset class and venture capital, which is arguably the highest risk asset class in finance. Um, I, and many of my uh, partners, we don't, we, we're really kind of creating companies. Uh, of course, we invest uh, largely in early stage companies. So you're not thinking about, you're not taking a portfolio approach. We're saying, hey, look, these three, four companies are not doing well. Let's get rid of them. Uh, we tend to, sometimes to our benefit, sometimes not, we tend to optimize each company, as if it's the only one in the portfolio, so that has, you know, that that has puts and takes. But so, in terms of identifying a pattern uh, in venture capital, um, I don't know that there's a formula I, that that says do this and you will be successful. Um, so people have, have done it on on uh, you know with with, with different approaches. But we often don't look at a portfolio and say, you know, these six companies, they're not going anywhere. Let's just shut them down. We in fact tend to focus on those six companies to see how to fix them. We have examples where that worked in our benefit, where everybody else gave up on the company and we, we invested more money. We rolled up our sleeves because we're all entrepreneurs, uh, who can help often, not always, um, Um, You know, that's worked to our benefit. And there are also examples where I can tell you, we've kind of said, man, we should have shut this thing down, you know, three years ago. So, uh, but again, like I said, we're all victims of our own experiences and and that's how it, how it goes. uh,
0: Of course. And obviously, you know, for you, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So, so Bloom, you know, is your, your latest uh, baby, no? So, so I guess uh, (laughs) at what point, you know, like opportunity comes knocking, you know, again, because. Obviously here, you know, like after seeing, you know, many businesses that succeeded, many businesses that failed. I guess that, you know, your time as well at Sigma probably gave you a ton of perspective, you know, and and, and perhaps things that you were able to reflect on, too, when you were, you know, operating before, you know, towards, you know, yeah. doing this latest journey. So tell
1: us about Plume. Yeah. So after about eight years or so at Sigma, I got a little scared, frankly, um, the realization that I've come to is as an entrepreneur, Alejandro, you're always selling. You're either raising money, you're trying to convince a a customer to buy your product, you're trying to convince an awesome uh, employee or a prospective employee to join your company, right? You're always selling, you're always leaning forward. What I realized after six, seven, eight years in venture, I found myself in a situation where we were always buying. We were not leaning forward, we were leaning back. Smart entrepreneurs come, they're pitching their ideas and dreams, and we re- found myself in a situation. I'm analyzing, I'm criticizing, but I'm not building. If you know what I mean in that decision stage, and I felt that because I believe, as I was explaining earlier, I think it's there is a model. I'm not saying it's the only model, uh, a, a success model, perhaps by resonating with the entrepreneurs and approaching investments from an entrepreneurial angle versus a uh, Sort of a purely finance angle, I, because I believe that's important, you want to be able to continue to resonate with the entrepreneurs, understand how hard it is to build these startups. So I, find, I got a little scared in that. I was always buying. I was, you know, thought maybe my skills, entrepreneurial skills, could, um, I didn't want to lose them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I like being on both sides of the table uh, where now I'm hustling the whole time as as a founder and ceo of plume whether it's customers or investors and, and, and anything so that i believe keeps a good balance for me i'm not saying this is right or wrong or it's for everybody but that's uh, and i intend to do this i you know plume hopefully will be successful and and a, and a big exit at some point um and i'll probably continue to invest um and and sort of go back and forth so that's that's what i uh, i enjoy and it it and when you're, you know, I, I've been in boardrooms on either side of the table as an entrepreneur, uh, as well as an investor. Uh, investors, oftentimes you see a lot of investors and board members with a lot of opinions that don't really matter and entrepreneurs don't really listen to them. Um, I'm not saying all of them are like that, but they're, they're often though. So you, you ought to be able to sort of distinguish uh, and, and really be able to resonate and connect with the entrepreneur. And you can only do that if you feel the pain. And yeah. uh, so and I, I mean, think, uh, you, you maybe I like well, the pain.
0: <laughs> and, well, maybe, you know, that's something that I guess, you know, once you're at it, you know, like you got to go at it again. And here, I mean, obviously you surrounded yourself by, you know, a founding team. And, you know, I'm sure that you saw a lot of yeah. co-founding teams that worked, you know, other teams that didn't work. So why did you choose to go at it with the people that you did?
1: Right. Well, uh, the founding team are four people. Um, sort of I kind of helped put us, put this band together. Um, it's myself and three others. Uh, and two of the founders, Adam and Sri, uh, were with me at Qterra. So they were not the founders of Qterra, but I'd known them for a long time. Um, and when I called them up, uh, this is an interesting story, particularly with Adam. Uh, he was a very, very smart product guy. He was a young guy back in uh, the Qterra days, like, like all of us. When I called him, he was living in Texas. I said, Adam, look, I'm doing this startup. Um, I, I think you're going to be, a key, you could be a key part of this. Um, he kind of said, okay, he didn't even really ask me on day one uh, what it is that I wanted to do. Um, so I said, well, we'll, we'll talk about it. So, um, you know, he just very quickly made a decision. So two of the three founders are people that I had known and gone through the, the battlegrounds. And that, um, you know, people's sort of real you um, uh, when you're, when you're gone through tough times and you've, you've, you've gone through um, all of this before it sets a different dynamic on your next venture I believe yeah. um, and then one of the other founders was someone that I, I you know I'm on uh, I had a tremendous respect for uh, you know in the industry in general on, on software and wireless and stuff like that so we were able to all get together and kind of discuss these crazy ideas um, and so one thing led to another and we formed a company, you know, the company was formed at the end of 14. '15.
0: Very cool. So then uh, Fari, for you, uh, obviously, you know, like uh, what an amazing, you know, now, you know, story of, of getting the band, you know, back, you know, like people that you've, you know, been able to build trust and, you know, being at it again with them. So I guess what, what is, what is the business model of Plume for the people that are listening to really understand?
1: Um, we are in the smart home space, you um, and let me kind of give you a little little perspective on that one. Again, going back to my my uh, kind of communications days. Back in, you know, during Pirelli and Siemens days, the need of the consumer, uh, you and I, was basically co- connectivity uh, at home. And we're talking about residential environment. We just wanted to get connected. There were DSL lines and you know, there, there was even sort of dial-up and so on back then. Um, the kind of the killer app was just to be productive, if you will you will, Um, then the industry kind of moved into uh, a a phase where our pipes got bigger uh, and faster, and and that was driven by entertainment, uh, social, you know, know, more video channels, uh, wireless, uh, set-top boxes, and and your Netflixes and Hulu's and so on. Um, Now we're in this phase, Alejandro, where the need of the consumer is driven by personalization. Consumer wants cross-device experiences. You want your lights and various things to talk to each other. You want your Wi-Fi to be awesome. You want, um, you know, your speakers, yada yada. You want to be able to um, you know, create these experiences. So, smart home is the category that we're in, uh, and that is, um, you know, the, uh, the the business of Plume. We curate. Uh, Um, smart home services we started with wi-fi parental controls ai based uh, security you know securing your cameras and and so on Uh, we have a motion type solution so this is the next big play for our constituents who are internet service providers so our business model is to curate these services they're all done from the cloud we're a uh, you know cloud subscription company who sell these who sell a platform to internet service providers like Comcast and Charter and Virgin Media and so on, uh, who who offer us now these uh, services inside the home.
0: Very nice. And talking about Comcast, even Comcast is an investor. How much how much capital have you guys raised to date?
1: Uh, I think we reached about 150 million dollars. Uh, we, we raised a, a round uh, back in January. It was the most recent round. Uh, Company is growing quite fast. Uh, we're growing 100% year over year. It's a very high-margin uh, software cloud subscription business, and uh, you know we want to continue to do that. Comcast is a not only a uh, an investor but a, a, a very significant customer. Charter Communications, the second largest ISP in the US, also is one. We're also very active in Europe uh, and recently started um, uh, deployments in Japan. So our business model will continue. We wanna we wanna enable these service providers to give us in-home services. I'm not just talking about connectivity and broadband to the home, but rather services in the home. Um, so and Plume is currently um, you know, a lot of a lot of these tier one operators in North America and Europe use us to deliver, manage, support, uh, those kinds of things.
0: And obviously, you know, like now, you know, like you, you are, you know, changing your investor hat for your founder hat, you know, like with Plume Uh, and obviously here you have, you have, you have raised money from, you know, several investors. I mean, you were just alluding to them and, you know, significant ones, you know, Spark, Samsung, Qualcomm. I mean, Pretty, pretty interesting, you know, like uh, uh, folks that you've been able to put together. So, so especially after coming from now from the investor side now to the founder side, you know, here and and really doing the capital raising efforts. Why did you decide to choose to go with these investors?
1: Right, I I took a different approach in this company, uh, in that our customer base, these internet service providers, are actually quite difficult for many startups to do business with. Um, they tend to have, think about your cable company, right? They used to be just your cable company provided you TV only, but they were your only option, right? Your telephone company was the only one. Uh, so these guys often take a very, they, they have a very sort of monopolistic DNA, if you know what I mean, right? A lot of their, they kind of grew up in this environment where a lot of customers are loyal to them because they have to be loyal to them, if you know what I mean. So as a result, the way they approach their suppliers and partners or vendors, they like to call them, is very much kind of top down. Um, They really squeeze you in every angle because they have, uh, they kind of have that DNA and that power, right? So one way for us to work with them, so we had kind of a unfair advantage in that by way of my background and, and, and all of the founders having worked and had relationships with this, uh, these types of people, we had enough scars, I believe, to know how to cut deals uh, without sort of, um, you know, giving everything away, you know what I mean? Um, and one angle that I found to be effective is to get them to put a little bit of skin in the game. Uh, so, you know, we are at Plume, for example, addressing a core need for them. We're not some adjacent technology. I mean if Plume doesn't work, their broadband is down. If your Wi-Fi doesn't work at home, consumer calls them up and says, my internet doesn't work. You see what I mean? So we're mission critical. So one approach I believe is quite effective and a lot of entrepreneurs should consider this. Uh bring your customers into the in, in under the tent. Uh, They should put their money, you know, like these companies are not only helping us and they know this. So the way I present it is not an ask, really, like, can you please, when we started with Comcast or Liberty Global or Charter, the conversation did not start with, will you invest in Plume? The conversation always started with, will you buy my product and technology and platform? That's what we, that's the number one intent and initiative we had. Once we decided that, okay, we're going to do something, investment is presented to our customers as a privilege rather than an ask on the, on the side, of course, we know when you're at the early stages, it's actually really an ask, but you don't approach it that way if, if you know what I mean. So I think it's good to, you know, when you have these deals, um, and of course, you know, it works. I, I, think they're, they're part of us and our success is theirs. Um it worked for me it works in our space because these isps are you know not easy to to deal with um and so there are other industries i think there, you know there, there are other industries where the entrepreneurs might find this type of an approach uh, valuable particularly when you have very large very powerful sort of customer base um, if you're in a space where you have you know, thousands and thousands and many, many, many customers on in the consumer space. It's probably a different story. But in this uh, B2B environment where you have not thousands, but hundreds of customers, they're writing you very large checks on an annual basis. I think this approach, uh, at least for us, it's working.
0: Got it. So how how big is, is Plume today? Anything that you can tell us about perhaps employees or anything else to get a, an understanding perhaps for the folks that are listening of the of the size of the business?
1: Sure. Um, Plume is, a, we have about 210 or so comp, uh, employees today. Uh, 60% of our people are in Silicon Valley and Palo Alto. We also have an operation in Slovenia, in Ljubljana, uh, as well as in Poland. We have a commercial office in Zurich, and we have a small team in Taiwan as well. A very international uh, organization. A lot of our data scientists and AI work and all of that happens in Silicon Valley. Uh, We have an awesome team, as I mentioned, in Europe, uh, Slovenia, and Poland, who do a lot of device-level software. Uh, We've also taken an open-source approach, so that is something that I'm very, very sort of supportive of. We uh, provide some of our software for free to to the device ecosystem to help us scale. I can't disclose to you numbers in terms of uh, In terms of revenue and all of that, other than to say it's a high gross margin business that's been growing 100% year over year, and I think uh, if we go in this pace in you know two to three years, we could will be certainly big enough uh, to be a public company if everything goes well. Uh, In terms of our scale, we have uh, our north star metric is the number of devices, number of connected devices we see in our cloud network, and those connected devices are your iPhone and your laptop and the devices that we're speaking over right now. Um, we've just passed 750 million devices. So we're approaching a billion devices and I think that's going to keep going. Um, so that gives us tremendous amount of knowledge and, and, and kind of forms as the foundation of our advantage and and strength moving forward. Um, so the businesses and we're in 16 million or so homes already deployed, uh, so there are a billion households out there that, that's a target market for them. So we're barely scratching the surface and already a, a substantial business.
0: And what a, and what a journey, Fari. So, uh, you know, obviously if I had now, you know, the, there's one question that I, that I always ask the, the guests that come on the show. And, and obviously, you know, I want to I wanna ask you the same question because with your background and, and the track record, you know, quite impressive that you have. And I'm really interested to see what's going to be your answer here. I mean, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Fari that was you know, perhaps thinking about like starting a business, what would be that one piece of business advice uh, before launching a business that you would give to yourself if you could go back in time and, and especially knowing what you know now?
1: Yeah, again, my experience is continue to be impatient and be unreasonable. Have unreasonable expectations. I think is uh, sort of the way I would approach it, Alejandro. Um, This now standard time zone, and frankly, I have a very recent experience on this as well. You know, we just closed a fairly significant financing just at the end of January. There was a lot of, uh, you know, we had signed term sheets and all of that kind of stuff. There was a lot of reasons as to why I could have just pushed it out a little bit. Some investors were saying, "Look, we need a little bit more time, yada yada," and I basically said, "Look." January 31st, the round is closing. You're in or you're out, uh, if, if you know what I mean. So had we waited, let's say another uh, month, you know, it, it could have been a different story given the current environment we're in. So I think this, uh, kind of prejudice for action and, uh, and just make decisions quickly, take two steps forward and one step back, but do that at a fast cadence. I think it's, it's at least in my experience, uh, it has served me better. Than trying not trying to not make a mistake. Mistakes are okay. Uh, obviously, you don't want to make the same mistake two or three times. But when the, the key there though is when you're moving fast, you're gonna make mis- probably more mistakes. But when it becomes apparent that the decision was a mistake, you have to admit it. Maybe drink a glass of wine, laugh about it, and move on, rather than sticking to it. And that's when people really get into a, a lot of trouble. You know what i mean right they're kind of they're protecting the decisions that apparent that are apparent uh were not the, the, the right thing to do and you want to focus on the right constraints that's another one that's big for me in my experience particularly in the startup world alejandro you know a startup says look this is what we should be doing there's a decision point uh, instead of but they say yeah but we don't have the money we don't have the people they we a little bit and You know, they kind of say, let's just do what we, they end up doing what they can, right? Uh, And then there's another decision point six months down the road. They don't do what they should. They do what they can. If the constraint was to go raise money, you know, you didn't have the money, go, you know, go get the money. Focus on that. Solving the right problem is very, very important because otherwise you're off 10 degrees and then you're off another 10 degrees, another 10 degrees. Before you know it, you're supposed to be going north, but you're actually heading east. And that's when, you know, startups lose it. So you got to solve That's That is what we talk about often in, in our current at bloom, solve the right problem, address the right constraints rather than the constraint that you can address.
0: I love it. I love it. So Fari, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Um, I am reachable on LinkedIn. I think that's probably the best way to reach out to me. Send me a message through LinkedIn. Um, and we go from
0: there. Amazing. Well, Fari, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today.
1: Thank you, Alejandro. It was a pleasure.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts,